Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is another episode of the Soapy Rao Show. And today I've got a very, very interesting gentleman who's got a lot of stuff to share with all of us. He is a senior associate director at Princeton University's McGraw Center for Teaching and Learning. Uh, Mr. Nick Vogue, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining me. So happy to be here. Thank you. You know, I um, just took a chance after watching your TED talk and I said uh, to Somnath, just write to him because I think it's very important in these times of so much information and so much uncertainty, especially, of course, with the pandemic, but of course, with even the internet and with social media, with YouTube and these get rich quick and get famous quick videos to talk about these things. And you've done it so beautifully in your talk about self-worth. So I wanted to reach out and thank you so much for replying and getting on a call before this. And, and we had a great chat. And now to agree to the recording and sharing what um, your research in the past years of your teaching and best part is teaching people how to teach and teaching people how to learn. That's so important. Mm -hmm. so thank you, first of all, for doing this. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to exploring the questions and issues with me. It's a continued process of exploration and everybody is aware of themselves. Everybody has a relation to themselves. And so they're a wealth of information about this thing that I'm trying to understand. Right. Uh, so, including you know, you. Um, how did this begin? Because, okay, maybe we can sort of compare where it started to today, uh, where we're living in a time where, um, there's so many tools for teaching and learning when it comes from online uh, resources to the traditional college, university, school systems to maybe even these online apps. When I say these teaching apps, these these sort of um, forums where you have these quick bites of information to even, mm -hmm. you know, lectures being recorded and freely pu published for people to learn who can't afford university or can't attend university mm -hmm. for whatever mm -hmm. reason to this conversation about uh, the traditional ways of teaching being a little, you know, outdated or maybe standardized testing being um, an unfair, unfair way of evaluating students. There's so many conversations, but all of this kind of just went to the back burner when the lockdown happened, right? And it just all went online. So from your yeah. experience as an academic and as a member of the uh, the center where you focus on teaching and learning, what is the significant sort of transformation you've seen over the past two years? Well, there, as you pointed out, so many, so many changes. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the college context where I work with, that's residential, where students live and uh, study and even and work on campus, mm -hmm. what we've realized is how important these interstitial interactions, just the connections with students, having the basis of a, a personal relationship, being in mm -hmm. the presence of other people, um, around the academics, the formal studying of class time or writing a paper or working on a homework assignment. Those mm -hmm. are so crucial to creating a, an attitude and orientation, uh, energizing people to engage in the hard work of learning. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also a site where we, we might share, hey, I heard this in my class and I'm process, I'm telling you about it. That's actually yeah. a crucial part of solidification of learning and knowing. So that one piece, and I think there's a comparable part of, in my view, of um, being present with other people as a mm -hmm. source of engagement, meaningful engagement, motivation, intention, even um, yeah. that can be replicated or at least approach it through some of the more advanced technology that you have. I'd say actually it's not replicated, but approached. And so that's, it's mm -hmm. better than a correspondence class or for many yeah. people or simply reading texts. 
Um, but it's, I think for most people, uh, it's insufficient or in, inadequate to um, actually being co-present and having that back and forth exchange. And we're, you know, the humanness of, of reading other people and being engaged by our relationships as a basis for being engaged with the content, which is crucial to learning it. Yeah, you know, when I look back, because, um, you know, I, I had a chance to do my undergraduation in both the UK and the US, right? And in mm -hmm. the UK system, it's a much bigger class strength, right? So you have these big lecture halls with three, 400 students, and then you have these smaller seminars or tutorials where you kind of interact with a smaller subgroup within your class where a teaching assistant or one of those people would kind of guide you into the finer points of the lecture. And then uh -huh. I did the smaller liberal arts format where it was 30 people in a course, whether it's your major or if it's a, just a part of the liberal arts program. And honestly, you know, I wasn't a great student. <laughs> I, just, uh -huh. I don't really, I, I remember, of course, my professors, the interaction, and they would monitor how you're coping with certain classes. Like I took Spanish as a second language, and then I just couldn't cope with it because I, I didn't. And then they realized, oh, you don't need a second language. You come from India where you do have a second language, so you don't need mm. this. But I'm talking about just the, in, the interaction and more importantly, living on a college campus away from home, mm. um, making mm -hmm. all those um, interesting choices, <laughs> let's call it mm -hmm. that, um, and which you look back on going, oh man, some of it was so, I'm so lucky I got away with just as it was, <laughs> as opposed to um, something more severe and long lasting. But mm. all those things I feel in many ways, you know, like living with a roommate, living independently, and if you add my vision uh, uh, situation in there, being um, protected for a large part of my life by being at home and things being being taken care of to kind of fending for myself, like, you know, cooking and cleaning and, and doing mm. laundry. It's very simple as it may seem to many people, but uh, it, it, I, I feel that was a lot more, um, rewarding in in if you want to call it life skills but it, it gave me a sense of okay this is you know there are consequences to your actions and you can't just you know mm. be a spoiled student saying you know i'm just going to study and go back to my room and study but there's so many other aspects of life you kind of uh, tune into you know absolutely I, I really relate to that first comment you made about feeling fortunate looking back that yeah perhaps evaded some consequences even though there are <laughs> mo um, many more that we encounter as an adult or emerging yeah. adult on a college campus. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, I think there, one, one way to look at it, not to go too deep, but I think we learn about ourselves by doing things. We gain confidence. We can, I think we can only gain confidence by actually doing things, not by mm -hmm. simply thinking things or feeling things. We yeah. have to do them and then reflect and then gain some sense of competency, yeah. uh, a confidence, even that I don't know how to do it, but I could figure it out, for instance. And I, mm. my, my belief is that it was only through action. Yeah. Um, That's so true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, this doing things, uh, it, it sort of leads nicely into your talk, which you gave about procrastination. And, you know, it's such a uh, nicely put uh, connection where you say there's this sense of ability, which is your innate talent, um, uh, sorry, your, your fundamental skill, as you might associate it with. Um, which which connects to um, achievement as a result, which connects to your idea of self-worth. And yeah. that's sort of this thing which I, I, I spoke about up top, which is in this world where you're constantly flooded with worth being attached to either uh, monetary, um, uh, what do you call it, valuation 
or social media status when it comes to your number of followers, the number of likes or the endorsements to videos telling you that you can be the next influencer to videos telling you that you are the superstar to this other idea of cancel culture saying that you can only do it if you follow these certain guidelines and this framework mm. which has been approved by a certain group of people and also that is determined by what is being fed to you because of the certain consumption pattern you might have right so how how is this i think maybe just for people who haven't had a chance to watch your talk maybe if you could just sort of talk about this idea of ability achievement and self-worth and just give them context to um, you know what where, where your studies and the research you've spent over the past 20 odd years or maybe more uh, mm -hmm. in the space yeah well you laid it out very well so uh, self-worth theory uh, as an approach to to motivation mm -hmm. uh, particularly to procrastination has been researched and studied for for decades before I started it so mm -hmm. it's you know four or five decades now but I think the dynamics are magnified in the current con on the current context and social in the context of social media, United mm -hmm. States context of achievement and performance, and so much of our lives being observed by and evaluated and judged by other people. But yeah, so we'll come back circle back to that. But software theory asserts that all of us as human beings have a need to achieve, to feel accomplished, to be mm -hmm. recognized for our accomplishments, and this is actually a crucial part of well-being. Uh, it's not simply some egotistical desire to be uh, better than somebody else. That can be part yeah. of it, certainly, but th there is a need to feel accomplished. Uh, and many, many uh, researchers and inquiries and approaches have recognized this. It, it may be expressed differently in different cultures, but um, this seems to be widespread. And so mm -hmm. if we have this fundamental need to feel capable and able, and that this is determined by ourselves and others by our performance yeah so absolutely school context and i'm going to use that because whether we're in school now or not we've most people listening will have gone to school so we all have this shared experience mm -hmm. so um the, the students who get good grades frequently get then attributed to well they're the good math they're good not only they, they get a good grade in math they're good mm -hmm. at math and that often becomes literally well they're the good students you know, that's, that, that example doesn't hold truer than it does in India, where everything is uh, associated to your academic uh, achievements. You know, when I mean, you just said that, it's absolutely mm -hmm. that good in studies means a good person. Bad in studying makes you a bad person, you know. And I had this joke in stand-up where this mother who's looking for a potential a bridegroom for a daughter is like, oh, these guys are great. But, oh, that fellow, he may be a rapist, but at least he has an MBA, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's a bit of a dark example, but it is uh -huh. the truth where people are like, oh, you know, he, he's horrible as a, as a, or she's horrible as a person. She, she does this, but at least she's a PhD. You know? mm -hmm. And sorry, I just wanted to interrupt you there for that, because that is so, um, I mean, this, this leads to a sort of, I call it a sickness where parents and so we have these um, so-called premium institutions in India called the National NIT, the National Institute of Technology, the IITs, mm -hmm. the Indian Institute of Technologies, like these IIMs. They're sort of like the Ivy Leagues, right? And you would be surprised the competition is so high and parents put their kids into these uh, coaching camps, as they call them, which are these training programs at the age of nine or 10 for these mm -hmm. exams, which are given at the age of 18. It's crazy. So why does that happen? Um, maybe it's a, a too vague a question as why does that happen? But, um, you know, this, this uh, uh, because you said this has been uh, studies which have been going on for a while, but this idea of achievement, right, uh, mm -hmm. which 
as a result, maybe I can use the word external validation where people perceive you as a certain thing based on achievement. Why, why is it so important for A, an individual and B, a larger collective? Yeah. Well, I think there are real material consequences of performance. Let's not pretend that there aren't economic and perhaps marital benefits of mm. achieving, right? Um, so th that's real. Yeah. Uh, and so saying to someone, oh, don't worry about the grades, just focus on X, Y, or Z, mm. I think is, is misguided, it's mistaken. It's not, it's, it's not often, it's not true. Yeah. The problem becomes when we have a single-minded focus on mm. ability and achievement above all else, not only, yeah. uh, and this isn't some moral consequence. I'm not saying that's morally wrong. I'm not here to make any moral judgments. Yeah. I'm talking about the motivational consequences and the consequences to well-being. Mm -hmm. So, but I, from a self-worth point of view, what the reason it's called self-worth theory is because the assertion is that the paramount human need is to feel worthy, to be perceived by one, and that we feel worthy in our community, in our context, uh, and in ourselves, most people, because of their sense of their ability, what they're capable of. We carry around this set of assumptions that you just mentioned, this interlocking beliefs that my ability Mm -hmm. um, points to, or is largely predictive of my performance, what I achieve. Yeah. And then that tells people and myself that I'm worthy or I'm valid, val valued uh, and worthy of validation. Yeah. And so if that's the paramount human need, then the one corollary to that is we're willing to trade off other things. So mm. the joke that you made is, Hey, in a, in a world where ability is the most important thing we're, and then achievement, we're willing to trade off other things of that, yeah. And seemingly would be of worth, like that's a good person or they're not a good person. And, and yeah. there's some fundamental dynamics in, in procrastination where this comes up. So mm -hmm. people procrastinate because they really want to achieve their often cases. We think, many people think, oh, I'm not motivated. In fact, it's because we care. We only procrastinate about things we care about, that yeah. are meaningful to us, that are significant to us. So it's a bit of a paradox. It's more of a bit of a paradox. It is a paradox, a puzzle. Yeah. If I care, why am I not pursuing it? It's actually even more important uh, then achieving is to maintain a sense of myself as able and capable, skilled. Mm. Uh, and that's the point that we trade off. So we're also willing to trade off other things to maintain or to pursue a sense of ability, capability of achievement. Right. No, I think you put it beautifully. Like when you said that there's a sort of a stalemate between extreme motivation versus this dread of failure, right? Mm -hmm. And these forces kind of counteract and leave you at this place going, oh man, what am I going to do? And you know, you mentioned ability achievement and self-worth, but I'm just going to, I think when we spoke on the call, I told you about this disability and mm. uh, achievement and self-worth. And mm. I'm just, as my example, if, if, if you can use it as a point to maybe explain this is, you know, this idea of everything um, being done for uh, validation. And as a result, your worth is directly related to the activities you do. Now, of course, um, you know, just to give you a context, like maybe early years, I just did, right? And I just did thinking the more I do, the less the disability will be uh, picked on or stand out in society. So they'll probably be like, oh, this, this guy does everything. He's one of us. He's normal, right? And that was mm. the that was the achievement to be normal, to not be a disabled person. Mm -hmm. As a result, it was filled with a bunch of things for achievement. Like I would play a sport, I would do this, I would play, play the piano, but none of it. And, and then the reason I'm saying it is because you fast forward from then to now, I just want to compare the two. So that was just this 
constant pursuit of activities which would then result in identity which would then result if those did well my identity would go up and if i didn't do well in those my identity self-worth would take a hit and you know fast forward to 2020 in the lockdown where it just sort of manifested in massive anxiety and uh panic attacks going oh my god if i do badly at a comedy show if i'm not funny as a comedian it means i'm a, I'm a shit human being you know mm -hmm. and now i kind of stripped that away and if you ask me uh, was it a remapping? I would call it an unlearning of the ways I was mm. doing things and just breaking down to basics and stripping it all down, which was terrifying because, you know, you have this thing going, oh my God, I'm nothing without that. But then saying, you know what, it doesn't really matter because even if you are holding on to all these things, nothing's going to happen. If you take it away, nothing's going to happen. And I know it's putting a long process in a very sort of short format but that's exactly what happened and now i'm doing things not based so much on what people will think of me not what um the achievement will do for my image or my status but just because if it means picking up the guitar again and learning it's about okay you know what i might not be in a band by next year but i'll at least play it better than i played it three months back or six months back or for that matter okay. doing you know yeah sorry well i'm curious what's the effect of this it's, shift it's, it's mind-blowing yourself and your experience it's mind-blowing because it um you know this idea we have of holding on to a certain thing and not letting go like for instance if you say something as simple as learning a new chord right or if you like i took back golf up after many years because I'm like, you know what, let me hit the ball. And after a lesson last week, I hit the ball really well. Then I was afraid going, don't touch anything, don't change anything because you don't ruin mm. that swing. Mm. And I said, you know what, leave it. Because if you hit a ball, golf ball well in the last class, forget that. Mm. And I was talking to this mind coach and he said, that's, that's a really important thing that he teaches is letting go, trusting in yourself and letting go. And I think that has helped me a lot by not worrying about the outcome as much as enjoying the experience. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds romantic, mm -hmm. but it really has helped me. Like if I, if I don't wake up early and meditate one morning, it's not like, oh my God, you're a horrible human being. How could you skip your mm -hmm. meditation? You're, everything you've done is, and I've, I've, I'm like, you know what? I don't get, uh, I don't let other people saying, oh, you woke up late affect me. I don't let the inner dialogue because I think when it comes to mm -hmm. self-worth, you are your starting point. And if you don't respect yourself or you don't think of yourself as a worthy person, and that's when it starts and everyone else's narrative towards you, whether it's family and friends uh, or even people, how they look at you is all based on that. And I think there's a way, I don't know if this is even uh, can be, you know, accounted for, but I think you'll be great to talk about this, but do people sense that energy when you have, you yourself have low self-worth? That's a really good question. I think, I think some of us do, some people do, we can sense it at different levels too. So I think um, we may sense people grasping or they're striving. We may feel just to mm. pick up this last point you made that we are an instrument to somebody else's sense of feeling better about themselves. I think mm. we probably all experienced that. Yeah, that yeah. Someone wants to feel better about themselves. They may put us down or they may use us or we may feel, feel felt by that. Um, Manipulate, right? Yeah. Right. So that's one way. I think, I think other times we might sense someone's, uh, I was going to say fragility, but that word's used so many other times. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say vulnerability yeah, yeah. of, of to our judgments or other people's judgments. And we can see that in them mm -hmm. and maybe we have some empathy and sympathy. We've all, I think we've all felt that. Yeah. Um, so I think we can perceive that particularly if we have a lens. So one of the 
benefits of a self-worth theory, which is a research-based way of thinking, yeah. is it gives us a lens on our own, on ourselves to look mm-hmm. inward and say, oh, there are these things operating when I was a college student, I didn't even realize. Uh, there are mm-hmm. things operating now that I didn't, yeah. didn't operate because I didn't have a lens that was burnished or polished for me to be able to see that. Then the question is, what do I do with that knowledge, that perspective? Can I apply it to other people? And understand, for instance, that we all need to be validated as human beings. That's not a weakness. It's not a, it's not a problem. It's, it's um, I think, a need, right, for, uh, for a human being? That's how I understand it. It's a fundamental right. human need to be part of a community. Mm. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a truism and maybe a cliche where human beings are social creatures. Um, and so what are the consequences of that in terms of worth and then the values of the community? So that's mm. certainly the argument of self-worth theory, that it's built into the organism as human beings. We have a need and therefore we have a drive. And we're going to feel yeah. those impulses uh, to protect our sense of uh, um, participation and inclusion in the group. And if, that, if the basis of that is on ability, mm. then we're going to protect our sense of ability. Mm. So you, if you think about yeah. college, let's just give you one concrete example for you and your listeners. Yeah. You've never been in a study group of some kind and you're working on your statistics problems out of your math and mm. the group's moving forward and you're confused. <clears throat> and you're trying to keep up and you're, mm-hmm. you're probably yeah. spending as much time monitoring what other people are thinking about you. Yeah. Do they think I'm dumb? Should I be able to do this? Are they smarter than me? Are they moving faster? That's yeah. the internal dialogue. Yeah. Um, and it can happen that quickly. And to the extent that we're doing that, we're not thinking about the math, the physics and statistics. And so that's gonna be harder to learn, but we also frequently don't actually ask. We don't say I'm confused. I can't, mm. I'm not following um, and part of that is certainly, I want you to perceive me in a certain way, but yeah. we might, but, and that's an important dimension to self-worth theory, but there's another piece like, oh, do I belong in this study group? Am I, am I, can I keep up with you all? Yeah. Um, and that, that motivates us as well. And I'd say the one consequence briefly is that to the extent that we're thinking that we're not present in the moment. So you talk about letting go, even of a mm-hmm. good thing. Mm-hmm. The extent that we're holding on to a positive thing yeah. that's in the past, we are not fully in the present. And yeah. again, it, I'm not making any kind of moral ethical judgment, but if it's yeah. the present moment, you're trying to perform again, that mm-hmm. task, and it's challenging, then any part of your consciousness, your attention, your intention is outside of that event or activity, then you're going to do less well. It's that simple. Yeah. You know, it's... Um... Yeah, I still have nightmares, you know, which not I wouldn't say nightmares, but I still have dreams which are filled with moments of, oh, my God, I woke up late for the exam. I, I'm, I'm missing mm. class. And, and you know, strangely, this thing you mentioned about the study group, it apparently works the same way in comedy audiences, right? When, say, there are 100 people and 10 or say, the not even majority, but a good number, good percentage laugh, say 40 people, the other 60 automatically start laughing because they don't look stupid. They don't look like the people who didn't get the joke. And Mm -hmm. even now, if you um, take it beyond that, there are a group of people saying, I didn't get that joke. I, AKA, I didn't find it funny, AKA, Mm. I'm offended. Mm. And, you know, so that's where we, I want to lead that to this idea of when an individual believes that he or she or whatever they identify as has Mm -hmm. low self-worth, it takes a lot to look within and say, my God, you know, I, 
have all these systems that are built in which are either mm-hmm. defense mechanisms these ability mechanisms these success based achievement me- mechanisms and um instead of saying oh, are they right and should i change it or it's easier to let how do i put it i think there's this sense okay and I, maybe i'll take it a step back maybe um when you become a part of a group you kind of compromise a little bit of who you are for the larger group mm-hmm. and I think when th- there are a lot of people in that group who don't want to address their issue of worth and identify with l- the larger cause whether it's rights or um, an activism or whatever the word is whether it's whether it's food or whether what they eat or what kind of political ideology I think what happens then is the individual all those values a person holds goes and is diminished for this one thing because everyone's like mm. you know what this is what I my worth is attached to and if someone says whether it's transgender rights whether whatever the rights may be right i don't take any particular issue or group it happens across the board in my experience and correct me if i'm wrong if if um, these these observations are completely off point but i sense this is when people are so attached to their cause or their belief that this is them that every other part of them which makes them this complex beautiful human being is taken away by this one thing which is like oh my god you know he's he they're attacking us so mm. how did why, why is more and more of that happening i mean you know if you want to connect this to self worth theory like why is this day and age creating more of these um what is the group maybe maybe the groups or these 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 sub cultures or subgroups very provocative point i you know to be frank i hadn't thought too much about that but let me <clears throat> let me summarize what i hear and then draw a more familiar example then maybe we can extrapolate back to sure 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 what we're seeing operating in certainly the, what i see in the american context um mm. so what i heard you say is when we care about something really deeply and then we begin to identify with it mm. uh so there, it happened lots of ways i am a democrat Mm. I am a biologist. Mm. I'm a lawyer. Uh I'm a big brother. It's not just mm. that that's what I do, it's what I am. Yeah. And yeah. as certain aspects of our identity become even more invested into the these um terms as categories, then the, the stakes yeah. go up. Yeah. We feel in, more, in greater imperative to do that. So here's the example that I was going to start with. So one thing i see when students come to college and on to graduate school what a lot of times what happens is you become more specialized mm. you lose a certain aspect of your identity yeah. uh, or aspects so maybe you were a guitar player in in high school and then and then when you went on to college well i have less time and i'm doing this thing so for me yeah. i was a, i was really into sports that was my yeah. identity growing up i wasn't mm-hmm. much of a student in college i was fine in high school i should say mm-hmm. good enough to get to a, a decent college but uh something was not outstanding i was better athletically frankly but yeah. i was not good enough to achieve at the college level and so i mm-hmm. lost that part of myself i wasn't fully aware that was happening yeah um but i became so my identity becomes more connected to academics yeah. now the stakes are up i am a blank major yeah i was just going to yeah 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 uh, so if my worth is attached to that into the performance yeah then I can feel that more strongly and I don't have other sorts of ones I feel that more strongly it's more f- fundamental to me it's more central to my self concept and mm. I don't have other sources of affirmation of enjoyment of being engaged losing myself and so if I'm doing poorly there or I feel threat it's not even that I do poorly it's that I feel the threat of doing poorly then I'm anxious yeah um and that and a sense of anxiety 
over time and even briefly really interrupts and intervenes in our experience. And number one, we don't feel good if we're feeling anxious. It's really hard to feel both good and anxious. Yeah. Um, I think you develop coping mechanisms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're often then defensive. Yeah. Because in a state of fear, we're going to defend, we're going to protect. Yeah. That's again, I would argue is built into the organism. Um, so there are certain dynamics that I can see how might be applied to the situations you're describing, right? Again, I haven't given it too much thought, frankly. Um, but I can say when we identify this, this is, and is there a certain sort of test of my identity, uh, right? So the, uh, my, in academics, so the software theory is focused on achievement, but the mm -hmm. exam, the grades are a sort of test of my identity. Am I really a physics major? Am I cut out to mm -hmm. be a doctor? Can yeah. I be an engineer? These are really um, specific, concrete assessments, at least I can interpret them as that. Yeah. And so maybe there's an equivalent, right? If you're either you're for us or you're against us, this is a very yeah. clear line. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that could be operating. I, 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 I don't know. I can't say what that feels like from within some of the categories of identity that people feel maybe yeah. that is targeted or marginalized in ways. I'm I'm a pretty conventional looking guy and I am. Yeah. Um, so I won't speak to other people's experiences. It's, it's not that I've never lived in a place where I haven't been on, on the fringe. I lived in Japan yeah. in the eighties in with not a lot of white folks. And it's not to make a comparison to what's going on, yeah. but I knew I stood out and I, yeah. people were aware of that. Uh, and I had some definitely complicated feelings about that. It didn't always it definitely did not feel good. And I remember feeling uh, even with a privileged status of a white, person in mm. japan there are times too that i felt slighted i knew i was slighted uh, in various ways and so that, that was instructive in the end it was it was helpful to experience that you know it's such a weird time i mean because you know it's gone, gone from one extreme where people like you know say you would say oh you know um, brown people are discriminated against or black people are discriminated against and of course i'm not undermining racism or not the fact that racist people do exist or racist concepts do exist but i'm just using my example when i lived there there have been a couple of encounters where people and i would say not white people so to identify but people have been nasty uh, and you know if they happen to be white they were white or but for whatever the color piece there are some nasty people in all groups i think um mm -hmm. you know and it comes from a sense of insecurity when you don't have this sense of worth in yourself, you want to put down other people, which you said uh -huh. a little while back on um, in our conversation. And this happens across groups in India. We're all Indians, we're all colored people. But within that, you have this construct of the caste system where because there's this idea that the Brahmins, who are the priests who have this interpretation of the religious text, they wanted to keep the other people down and used other things like darker color, uh, cleanliness and all these facts that mm. these people, you know, and it's across the board in different cultures, right? So mm -hmm. now in, in today's day and age, there's this sense that, you know what, within like say American society, you have all these groups and you have one person to blame and in America, it's the white male, the straight white male, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and people are doing more and more of that this is my experience and I'm of course not qualified as a researcher or any psychologist or any of those things, but just my experience, I hear this, is people, when they keep blaming someone or something for their condition or their situation, there's absolutely no, number one, sort of time or mind space to look at yourself and say, where can I start mm. work? And secondly, there's no growth in society. Mm. 
And I, I feel this, I, I mean, I, as I told you, I'm not qualified, but I sense this as a human being because there's just too much shouting, no one's listening and everyone's just pointing fingers, you know? Mm. And I don't know, I, I, I think it's just not, no one's gonna benefit at the end of it because I, I don't know. I, I was thinking, I'm, I'm gonna make a statement that may seem unconnected at first, but hopefully yeah. I can connect it. I was actually thinking about this this morning. So I just did a little 10 minute walk before we sat down to talk. Mm-hmm. And the th- thought that came to my mind was that there's a really powerful and positive motivation, I think, underlying much of these actions, which is justice. Mm. I think that's a, people are seeking justice. Yeah. And that I'm all, for, I'm in favor of justice. That's yeah. something I believe very strongly in and fairness and equity. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking to myself, well, why shouldn't people pursue justice? Is there some principle that's more valuable or more significant to me or yeah. others? And so the first thought was, well, if that's their pri- primary objective, then I'm not here to judge that. That's, that seems fine. That seems fine. Uh, good. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the angle I might take actually is what is the consequence of an individual feeling that is their responsibility? What is the consequence to themselves of yeah. taking on uh, creating justice in society as a whole? Mm. Uh, they, I think we do have a responsibility to do that as members of society, but I would want to look at the psychological consequences. I think it's very, it's a big burden. Yeah. It's very, and it's very painful and hard to bear. And if people say, I'm willing to do it again, great. I'm not questioning that, but yeah. um, I think it's one of the consequences is people are in pain a lot of the time. It's a lot of, um, and as you said, you're, you're, you're always on a high threat factor. Mm. You're like, where's the next comment going to come from? Where's the next injustice going to come from? And mm. I mean, I can, you know, attribute to this because I lived in the, in the in this cycle of thoughts, which was blame, shame, guilt, and fear, right? Mm. Where you blame someone for your situation. It could be your parents. It could be society. It could be a God. Why did you do this to me? It could mm. be shame. But why am I blaming someone? And why? And, and be ashamed of who you are. It could be guilt because, my God, I'm, am I not doing enough? I mean, am I not worthy enough? And why have I said these things to people who love me? And then there's fear, like what 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 does the future hold for me? And mm. now, if you quickly just change that to um, and that that and the blame, shame, guilt, and fear leads to this constant threat level, right? This constant thing. Where's the comment going? I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight, and I'm going to be like, um, I'm offended. How dare you say this to me? I'm disabled, and your identity becomes this person who's constantly on the on, on being cornered as an animal, you know. But if you mm. just take the same thing to no more blame, no more shame, no more guilt, no more fear, where you just flip those words on in, in your feelings, not just saying it, where you say, you know what, I'm not going to blame anyone. I'm not going to be ashamed of who I am. I'm not going to be guilty for the things that happened in the past or of what I might say in that moment. And I'm not going to be afraid because I'm just going to trust in myself and let go. And I bring this again uh, because I feel if you do that as an individual, then I think as more and more individuals do it in their life. And I'm sorry, at the risk of sounding like a, a spiritual leader, mm-hmm. I'm not any of it. But this exactly, I feel, makes a collective of individuals who live this, as opposed to a group, which is masking this, mm. this, this, this sort of insecurity, you know? Well, one thing I take away there is you're, you talk about what you're going to do, I'm going to do this. And I think there's an yeah. important difference between what an individual chooses to do in terms of what they choose to think, believe, and you talked yeah. about before about unlearning, um, with the unlearned messages we've internalized. That if, mm. 
we see in our societies, people have these positions. They, they didn't all individually come up with this on their own. They're saying they're receiving these messages through socialization, media, et cetera. In any case, yeah. it's one thing to say, I'm going to choose this and make these activities. Another thing, and entirely in my view, then to prescribe that to other people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. <clears throat> and I think to that's proscribe certain point. actions. And it's, so it's ironic, right? So people will sometimes say, talk to me about all well, these snowflake college students. And, yeah, and in some sense, yeah. you know, I think that it's some of the positions are unhelpful to them. I try to start with the point of empathy, meaning the students. Um, yeah. But I also take the second point, which is for me to prescribe to them is not actually part of my values. I don't go around telling people what they should do. I don't see, I don't hold that as a high value Yeah, uh, in my, my own framework. Uh, now, if they do and they want to tell people what to do because that's a high value to them, then that's mm. that's their right. Um, yeah. And it's consistent with their values more than a right. It's consistent with what they think is right. Um, so that's yeah. one point. But this idea that something I found to be true and learned about my experience, how do we transfer that? How do we share that? This is the root of teaching and learning. And mm. uh, you talk about spiritual. I, I study Buddhism. I'm completely secular. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not religious at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my understanding of the Buddha said, "Don't let's don't do what I said because I tell you. Do what I yeah. said because you experiment with it and mm. you find it to be true." Yeah. So I, if you take your position and say, "I found this to be true by virtue of my experience. I've acted this way. I've done the hard work of changing certain kinds of beliefs, and and that led to different perceptions and yeah. feelings yeah. and emotions." And I'm in a place that my life feels quite different. Uh, and then tell other people, hey, give that a shot if you're not, if yeah. you're unhappy with where you are now. Yeah. Or even if you if you resonate with any of these thoughts or feelings, it could be, mm. you know, mine was blame, shame, guilt, fear. But yours could be anger. It could be mm. um, revenge. It could be malice, whatever it could be. But look at it. And I'm not I, I never preach and I don't leave, uh, you know, listeners with any sort of uh, teachings, right? If they take something well and great, right? If, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a sort of a self-help podcast. It's more a conversation with, you know, people who are doing great work like you. And that's the thing. And I think um, keeping uh, the, the beautiful thing about spirituality, which is mentioned is it gives you a set of tools to look at life with or lead life with. But mm, religion, well I feel sometimes is very sort of I wouldn't say close-minded, but it's very narrow, uh, saying you have to do these things. And of course, that's the misinterpreted form of religion, because in the religious texts are saying, this is what we've noticed as humans who've gone before you has worked. So try doing this, you know, <laughs> right. And if we looked at religion like that, I think it's a very cool thing Say, okay, you know, I, we've noticed that killing too many people and being greedy isn't helpful. So try not doing that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we've obviously misinterpreted and saying, take this aspect of it, the way it's told by people who know better than you. And that, I think that automatically sets a tone for, we are going to tell you how to do it, which is, I don't think the healthiest way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe that a crucial step to, to well-being, <clears throat> to living a, a good life, is to develop our own understanding of reality, number one, and, but more mm -hmm. significantly, to understand what it, the human condition, what does it mean to be human? And yeah. I can't just read it. I can yeah. read it. That's helpful. And that could be in a, a scripture book, or it could be uh, from research articles. Yeah. It could be YouTube videos. But ultimately, I need to process that and understand the what it means to be human in this, in the, which is part of a community, which we've been talking about, or many communities. Yeah. And that that is the basis then of my actions. So I think that uh, living ethically is a really prodigious intellectual task. And so that's in yeah. in my the last five years, 
mm-hmm. more. I've re- taken on that as the task. Why do I act the way I do? How does the world work? <clears throat> yeah. How do I use that understanding of the world to act in ways that I want? Because a lot of times I haven't acted in ways that I wanted to. That's the root of procrastination. I have certain values. I have certain beliefs. I want to do something, and yet I can't make myself do it. So procrastination, that is a really perfect puzzle to yeah. examine the complexity of human behavior because I want to act in certain ways, and then I don't. Yet in yeah. lots of parts of my life, I do automatically, easy, without reflection. What's yeah. going on? Um, and so in my view, to, to, for at least in my journey, I've had to say, how does the world work? And then how do mm. humans work? And then how do I work? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I don't mean produce, I mean, how do I operate in the world? Mm. Um, and so it's been a many year process. And I didn't realize when I first started studying self-worth theory, which initially was mm-hmm. just somebody was doing research on something that I had felt and I was deeply ashamed to talk about, but they were talking about it in ways that gave understanding. And I, I was blown away by that. In a, mm. in a way that I'd never been blown away by an academic course. Yeah. But that has developed and evolved and grown and f- is a core of this larger initiative. What's something that motivates all people, including me, and so that I can understand what I'm doing and why? Yeah. And without, with, with much less judgment, right? With less yeah. judgment of myself and others. And I think that's and the it's basis very hard of to get to that place. Yeah, it's a basis of compassion. I think it's very hard to do that because you're taught, you're kind of conditioned to believe that you can only uh, be good compared to someone as opposed to just good mm-hmm. as an individual. Mm-hmm. And I think the beauty is 7 billion unique life experiences yeah. is what we should aim for. And I think that'll make, make a better world. But, you know, another thing which may be a point, I've, I think in, in a culture where procrastination as, as where people really procrastinate, as you said, on things they really want to do, uh, mm-hmm. but they, they are scared of failure and that. But then what I, I sense is people are okay to do the things which are either hidden because larger numbers are doing or mediocrity, which is not judged, which goes unnoticed. But another thing which I feel has happened is as a result, people don't want the, f- the failure to be attached to them. So as a result, you probably have noticed this. People copy on, on emails when work emails are going out. They BCC everyone, they CC uh, everyone, because when shit uh, hits the fan, <laughs> they don't uh-huh. pass on the buck, you know? And I don't know if that's connected to procrastination or self-worth, but I'm, uh-huh. you know, in corporates, you notice a lot of that where people are like, yeah, you know, when things are good, you take the credit for it. When things go wrong, uh-huh. you kind of want to say, yeah, but I told him or her to do it, but they didn't do it right. And as a result, the product or the the, the project isn't the best it can be because it's just people trying to not put their head above and get sort of noticed for, for you know, taking a risk. And you mm-hmm. sense, you see a lot of people who uh, want to push, and please, you know, you take this because I think you've spoken about this a lot. The people who really want to do it and let the motivation override the fear of failure are the ones who maybe the word is are successful, who aren't scared, who end up doing what they do and are then applauded and then recognized for doing the truly good work, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, to, I'm going to use the example of the CCing the email. Yeah. Uh, so on the one hand, there are real material consequences of you want to insulate yourself from. So you CC because there's a trail and you want to be able to document that. Yeah. There's a risk, something goes bad. Yeah. But I think, so, but the answer to that is for the individual to look inward. And so to the extent that we're acting in ways that are going to protect ourselves, that is different 
than acting in ways that are going to maximize our achievement, our exploration, our learning. So if we're in a protective mode, we're in a protective mode. It's really hard to do both. So the individual has to look inward. The same action can be motivated by two very, very different motivations. So the quintessential example is I'm cleaning my refrigerator the night before exam because my refrigerator is dirty. Yeah. Well, it is dirty, but is that yeah. why? Yeah, That's yeah, it. yeah. The first is a reason. The second is a motivation. Mm. So am I cleaning the refrigerator so I don't, I'm not made anxious by the task of sitting down to study my physics that I haven't been, that brings up feelings of inadequacy or confusion and frustration. And so the same action, two yeah. very different motivations, and they can be both. We're complicated yeah. beings. We can have multiple but yeah. so for the person who sees seeing that is to, it's just actually to use this as a moment and say, well, what is motivating this? See this not as an only an action, but as a mirror mm. to look inward and say, what's motivating me here? Can, what can I learn from this? Is that what yeah. I want to be motivated by? It's not that it's irrational, this? wrong or bad. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. But that we can gain an understanding even from an, a little in, incident or event or activity like that. No, that's amazing that you just put that in context because if someone can copy everyone saying, hey, by the way, just letting you all know this is the, this is the status of where the things are so you guys can take from here, I mean, take it on, take it forward, as opposed to, hey, guys, just check it out. I've done this. By the way, I've done this. I'm just letting you know. Don't blame me later, you know? So that mm-hmm. you're right. It's so in anything. And you mentioned that thing in your talk, right, where a lot of students would come before an exam. Oh, I just studied for one hour. So just to put it out there, in case I do badly, you know, I've done only one hour. Mm-hmm. But in case I do amazingly well, you know that I'm, or you tell yourself, I'm truly amazing. I studied for one hour and I'm brilliant, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's the same and thing. We can, yeah. We can recognize this as a fundamental human need and drive and therefore mm-hmm. hopefully not judge it quite so much. But I think um, one of the things you said there about mediocrity, a little thought that popped into my head the other day, and so I'll try it out. It's the first time I've said it to anybody. Yeah. Um, is that if we're going to live an authentic life, where we pursue our deepest values and interests, yeah. we must be prepared to be viewed by others as living a mediocre, meaning largely meaningless life of lack of achievement. Right. Because if I do the things that matter to me, but they don't matter in society, then most people mm. will look at me and say, yeah, what you're doing doesn't matter. Well, you I know have what? to be prepared to do that and deal with that consequence if I'm truly going to be uh, yes, excellent in, my, in the things that matter to me. Yeah, no, truly authentic, you know, because I'm going to do the jokes that I want to say, and it might not lead to a Netflix special or to the famous, most famous comedian in the world, but I'm happy with that. And it takes a lot of courage, or mm-hmm. I would say I don't have courage, but you know, it's so, and thank you for sharing that um, on the podcast, because I was just listening to this interview with uh, Bryson DeChambeau, the golfer, mm-hmm. and he was talking about how he was you know, talking to Chris Pratt, the actor, and the advice he got is, man, you got to live two lives. Or maybe I've misinterpreted this, but what he said is, when you're in the public eye, you have to play that act. So Mm. you are not letting all the negatives, especially the negatives, and maybe the positives, get to your head or get to you and get to your being. So you live that act out there, but when you come home, you have to be your authentic self. But Mm. from what you just said now, being truly authentic, means you're not living an act. What people are constantly uh, seeing off you is you. And it's so much harder, right? Because, um, you know, for for instance, now when uh, someone is doing what they really want to do, and they're not doing it for validation or external sort of recognition, um, then it's very, someone else might look at 
um, you know, someone just doing gardening because they love it or living slowly because they love it or not consuming as much because they mm. want to do it as a boring life. But they yeah. might see someone like Jeff Bezos going, you know, to subspace and spending a billion dollars in a yacht as the most amazing thing, even though mm -hmm. that night might not be the most authentic way he's living. Of course, if he is, then nothing like it. But um, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Because there are so many people who, you know, do the perfect thing. They get a degree. They, I mean, they get academic um, tick boxes ticked, which is, you know, the undergrad, the masters. They get their job. They get a high paying job. They get stock options. They buy an apartment. They get a bigger apartment. But they are seen as success stories. But if you ask them, how do you feel? They're still anxious. Mm -hmm. They feel, yeah. my God, I'm only identified by my job. They might not say it, but their conversations are, are always about, ah, oh, man, I hate my job. They're not getting a promotion. Mm -hmm. My team sucks. There's politics. I want to move to a bigger flat. I want to get a better car. I want to get more stocks because the person next to me got 5 million stocks. At Google. You know, whatever the mm -hmm. thing is. Mm -hmm. And do you, I don't know. I, do, you, do you think that when it becomes that feeding cycle for self-worth, right? Mm -hmm. That it never actually fulfill self-worth or you never are able to un uh, realize your self-worth have, have you has there any sort of research for that or have you noticed anything not sure how much research but there's certainly wisdom in the mm. in the traditions and in the and that have been passed down and lots of cultures and societies and eras mm -hmm. uh, i mean I, my observation is that we are right so my starting point is people are seeking worth if, if people are seeking worth in their uh bank account they will mm. never achieve it that is simply okay. not the way worth is attained. Uh, it's not possible. Okay. And, why, uh, and so, can you just break it down with a little more mm -hmm. explanation? Because I think that's really important sure. for me to understand. Sure. So as I, well. I would say that's all, because it can't be achieved means people will continue to do that and continue to do that and continue to do that. Like so an if endless you, loop. If you, okay. Okay. Right. So if I'm trying to find my sense of my worth, self worth, mm -hmm. by being a comedian and standing up and getting adulation, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the Robin Williams uh documentary i just saw okay that this understandable as a human being that i would seek it seek my worth in that but my yeah. understanding of how worth operates self-worth operates is you will never attain that that self-worth yeah. is about an appraisal of myself by myself mm. this relationship between me and myself yeah yeah my yeah. actions and my thoughts and beliefs Not, and so anything that's yeah. external to that it may impend impinge upon it or influence it but we'll never resolve that um, yeah. in, in part because I know if I am inauthentic, I know, <laughs> or I believe I have certain beliefs uh, about my insides and how they comport with my outsides. And in fact, that can actually increase the sense of schism Yeah, because I've achieved all these things by what other people value, but internally I've, I've been a failure. Well, the void I've compromised gets these things. bigger. Yeah. Because I sense, it just, it doesn't become about, you know, you mentioned Robin Williams. It doesn't become about how many people laughed or did you get a better set or did you become better as a performer? But then the byproducts start bothering you. How many specials, how many tickets did I sell? How many fans do I have? That starts coming in when you are looking for, you know, your worth as a self from an activity, you know? Well, think about his example. And again, I haven't studied it too much, but yeah. what, what was he known as? He was funny. Yeah. But he was knows his incredible mind, innate ability, this way to do things that no one else did. So he could yeah. only go down from that at a certain point. Mm. And it was the operations of his mind. It's very much about ability, right? It's not just he's funny yeah. and he's developed timing. And it's he, the nature of his humor was this kind of 
creativity, this genius, yeah, yeah. inherent, unchanging, uh, so distinctive, unique. There. Yeah, he's already right. up there. So again, I don't know the man. I didn't know anything. I've only yeah. watched this one. I mean, I was a fan, certainly growing up. Yeah, I, I but I can imagine yeah, as much. an illustration that if that's where we gain our defense, even if we, the, the nature or the reason for our achievement is this quality. Yeah. And that quality has a shelf life, a duration. It's going to go down. And we can mm-hmm. imagine that that um, that discrepancy or the fear of that diminishment is a diminishment of who we are. And that's holding and, and, on, right? Again. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and we've internalized a certain belief, a set of beliefs. Number one, that that, that is the def- definitive of my worth to other people. It's not just that I made them laugh. It's that I made them laugh by being a genius. Mm-hmm. Do you see the difference? Yeah. But um, why don't we learn? You know, so many people have ended badly when it <clears throat> comes to just pursuing this unattainable goal of uh, worth through activity or money. I mean, so many people have come around, like Mm -hmm. you hear stories, right? Like Jim Carrey after his massively success career, he's like, none of that means, you know, none of it means anything at all. Peace of mind and your true appreciation of your authentic self and understanding why Mm -hmm. you want to do and why you want to do something because and and doing it because you want to. That's what matters. And we have again and again over the course of thousands of years heard it in different ways. Mm -hmm. Why don't we learn as a society, as a a civilization, and, and, and this beautiful thing you said, there's a shelf life, right? Why can't we appreciate someone, say, for instance, say Tiger Woods, who's a mind-blowing golfer, right? But we want that to last forever. And that pressure is reflected on the person. And then they end up going down the slippery slope where they can't sustain mm-hmm. it. And then it goes down another rabbit hole of you look at the things that they do off the golf course or off there, you know? So but why can't we appreciate someone who's amazing for one book or for one song or for one right. year in their career? And that's mm-hmm. all they want to do, and that's all they can give because that's the that's the potential they've reached. But we want them to drag it out. We want ten more specials from Dave Chappelle. We want mm-hmm. ten more songs mm-hmm. from you two. Why, why why do we have that? And why can't we just appreciate that? We call them one hit wonder. So right. maybe you can give more light on this, and um, you know if it makes any sense at all. The question. Hmm. Well, the, as you said before, there's there's some research on this. I think. On the one hand, I do, I'm immersed in the research on self-worth and motivation. I'm also try to learn from the wisdom of the ages. Um, yeah. uh, so Buddhism, other in particular for me, but others have been observers of human beings. And that actually is empirical. So the one thing I would start first is I just want to understand. So you've noticed this is a common pattern. So mm-hmm. to me, what that tells me is it's not even so much that humans are flawed, is that that means there's an enduring pop reason why we're doing this. We, it's part of virtually all people. Yeah. So there's a drive, there's a need. Um, and so to accept that and say, that's human. Mm. You are human if you're pursuing that. I'm yeah, not going yeah. to judge your humanity. Absolutely. Yeah. But if you say, I don't like the consequences of that. Mm. I don't like the way that this need is manifesting in my life. It has, then I'm happy to talk with you and try to help you deal with that. So yeah. That's one point. A second yeah. is I think human action is super complicated. We have yeah. lots and lots of motivations. They they meet each other obliquely. They're in opposition. They get us stuck. There's layers. Human consciousness is so complicated. We're yeah. aware that we're aware that we're aware that we're motivated and feeling <laughs> and perceiving and all yeah. that uh, funhouse mirrors of back and forth of our consciousness. So even if we want to change, but yeah. I think so. That's that's why it's hard to undo this. But I would say, I think that our society 
and I can speak most mostly about American society. That's what I've been born and raised mm-hmm. is we've received these messages. So on the one hand, there's examples. I, I don't know Jim Carrey's story as much, but mm-hmm. um, people have gotten through the other side and they said, here's what I've learned. And mm-hmm. they're saying remarkably similar things. Yeah. <laughs> what are yeah. my values? How do I align those? Um, I want to choose things that are intrinsic to me. They're internal. When I'm too oriented toward the external, these negative things happen. These, this is the wisdom of the ages. Many, 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 many people have said this. Mm. Uh, and very few people have said who are who I would consider wise have said things that are very different than that, actually. Um, so there's a real coherence in that message. Yet most of us don't, including me. Um, so, oh, including me as well. As I just want yeah. to point out, I mean, none of this we're saying is there's no right or wrong way. It's all the human experience has so many elements to it. It's just that we're trying to identify the different shades of gray, you know? So I think one of the obstacles is, is shame. Oh, I should already know this, or I should be doing this. Or I think frequently people either present or it is received that these observations are cast in a moral framework. It is better to be intrinsically motivated. No, I would completely disagree with that. It is not better. Um, It is simply a different kind of motivation. And if for you, the consequences of being intrinsically motivated versus extrinsically bring you greater happiness and well-being, then I would say do that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So what research does is it tells you, hey, we found found these findings. When people are intrinsically motivated, when they have an internal locus of control, when Mm -hmm. they're driven by passion and interest, when they're driven by a desire to serve and help other people, they're yeah. happier. They often yeah. also perform better if that's important to you. So right. when your professor said, don't worry about the grade, just focus on the learning. Although I don't mm. like that formulation, there's a deep truth to that. Yeah. And they're speaking it from experience. They were fascinated by outer space or the workings of the human body or mm. uh, the human mind. And they were driven by that primarily. It's not that they didn't care about getting a good grade or getting a PhD or getting tenure, but that's but not relatively speak. Right. Yeah. And at least they held them both. Right. Um, no, and these and guys so, and gals and whoever who do that and practice that, they, they, they truly end up, you know, the byproducts don't matter like fame, fortune and results, but they truly end up outdoing it. Right. Outdoing themselves. Well, like, I don't, I've never been famous or, or I mean, rich, me neither, but I, <laughs> I suspect it matters some. No, yeah, it, it does. But I'm saying just the process. Um, yeah. You, you know, as you said just now, like, you know, I, it's so weird because th- this particular process of talking to you, this conversation gives me so much uh, to think about and gives me satisfaction just to hear your thoughts on things that I've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to, you know, go viral. I don't know. I hope it does. But it doesn't matter to, to me, you know, I really enjoyed this. Can I just say one more thing there? Um, um, one thing I felt and I've observed in others, I remember feeling that I, that my motivations needed to be pure. Mm. That if I want to, I'm in grad school and I've chosen this path. And so my path was to um, make college more equitable and accessible to people who otherwise wouldn't yeah. have that experience um, and to unpack that and equip them and empower them. But I also wanted to, have a good job at a good university. And I felt some real conflict around that. So the message I want to say is we don't have to have pure motivations. We are humans. We want to fit in. 
We want to achieve. We want to have secu- material security. Absolutely. We want to have status. That's okay. We don't have yeah. to. Don't don't judge yourself. We don't. That's okay. Um, the question is, how does that influence our behavior and our choices? Mm. Um, does it conceal or or obstruct our other motives, which is to serve? Uh, yeah. So we can hold both those, and we yeah. don't have to be a saint or a martyr. Um, I, they, I what think that's a I think we want to do is be an observer and yeah. accept, and then do the best we can with that. And yeah. I think that the wisdom of the ages tells us that ha- being tapped into our intrinsic motivations, our interests, our passions, mm-hmm. being clear about what's, uh, what our social value, what we want to achieve in the social world is important. Mm-hmm. It's not which one those things are. It's the process of getting that clarity and yeah. then aligning our values with our actions as best we can yeah. and uh, giving that grace to other people. Uh, that they're trying to do the same thing. And when we don't, we say, oh, no, that's me being a human being. Um, yeah, I'm a human being still. Uh, and I have these failings and these that's foibles. That's so well put. And, yeah. yeah. No, I think it's very important because I'd like, I think all of us like to buy stuff, go on a holiday. But sure. if that only becomes, if the problem is every time you're on holiday, you think of, a, oh, I want to be in a better holiday. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. if you can balance it where, you know, you can enjoy it because you enjoy doing X number of things on a holiday, what gives you, um, you know, true satisfaction, contentment, happiness, whatever the word you want to use. And if you enjoy that on that thing, spending the money and you use uh, your time to make the money to go on that, I think it's great. And I'd love to do it as well. I don't um, think, but you know, I read this book recently uh, by Eckhart Tolle called uh, A New Earth. And I'm sure you've heard of it and possibly even read it in which there's a very important thing he says, right? He uses this in reference to parenting where he says, where it's a role versus a function. Now, if you take up parenting as a role, and he specifically uh, spoke about it as parenting as a role comes with the attachment of, he calls the ego, where Mm -hmm. you put this sort of burden of your experiences onto this child. And you automatically create this child as an inferior who doesn't know as much as you, who is this young being who you have to mold into what you think is the right way, which is determined by the ego and the worth is as a result attached to conditions Mm -hmm. and not unconditional Mm -hmm. love. Whereas the right. function comes as it's my offspring, but I will give him as or her as much respect as a being, but I will protect, I will, um, you know, nourish, I will cherish this life as a life that is part of me, but I will not love it depending, uh, love the child based on the results or depending on how um, the child does as a result. Like if it listens to me, I will reward it. If it doesn't listen, then I will punish it. You know what I mean? So it's more mm-hmm. e- detached from the ego. And I found that really beautiful. And if we can apply that to things we do, like say, for instance, you're a professor as a function, as, a, as opposed to a role. I think mm. that's a really cool way of, uh, I think he put that across really well. Really interesting. I, I, I have a book of, or two of Eric Eckhart Tolle on my on my shelf here, but I actually have not read that book. I don't know that part of his message, but it resonates with another person that I've been watching and reading lately, uh, Gabor Mate. Okay. Uh, and he, he speaks in very similar terms about the dilemma that a child faces in relation to the family, especially the parents mm. of living authentically, being oneself as they un- one understands oneself, mm. and but also needing attachment, needing security, love, and that mm-hmm. the child frequently feels that they can't do the first in order to get the second. And so I mm-hmm. think perhaps what 
Mate's uh, work does explains what happens and how it happens if we, if as parents, and I am a parent, we, and I've done this, and Mate has too, if we parent in the role versus the function, right? If we attach ourselves mm. uh, and we make our love, our security uh, contingent. Mm, mm. Um, and uh, on what they, on the, what the child does. Yeah. Um, and then we learn that. We learn that as, as people. And I think it's absolutely operating with self-worth. And then we learn that in school. There's, yeah. w- there's a way to read the story. It's what the author intended and you didn't do that. And so yeah. you're, you're trying to learn how to do that thing. And there's one way to solve the problem and here's the method. And I'm trying to learn how to do that. Why? To get approval of yeah. the teacher. Yeah. Um, and so this is a fundamental dynamic. And so I think, but I, I think your question here is, as human beings, as parents, and again, I'm a parent, how do we inhabit the social role, but also yeah. have this function relative, in this case, to our child and to ourselves? Um, mm. And to recognize that's a real dilemma. I'm not sure how Tolle yeah. talks about that, but I would say, first of all, this, that is a dilemma. He says to do it as a function, but I was just trying to understand because you, 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 point, you kind of put it, put it really well here. It's a dilemma, but how, and it's, I think it, it goes back to the previous thing where you said, where we can, we have to live in this. We can't, we can't detach <laughs> ourselves and live as a hermit in a forest and say, you know, my child's Mowgli and going to learn from the plants and the animals. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there is, you know, it's very difficult to do either or, you know. Well, first of all, I have to say that uh, Jungle Book is my all-time favorite movie. Oh, uh, okay, so I didn't know this. you hit the nail it's on the head. Uh, my Mowgli. favorite too. I loved it. Okay. Um, Close second is I, Lion King, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, finding if if we're talking about parenting, then Finding Nemo is a wealth of uh, of insights about parenting. It's yeah. very much actually what you're saying. I'm not going to get into that, but yeah. uh, so now I'm getting into very personal territory because my daughter just went off to college, and oh, um, nice. You know, and so that's a, a moment where we, we reflect and look back. I think um, I can certainly f- have felt the tugs and the dilemma that Tole is talking about that you're recounting here. Mm. And this distinction between role and function, I guess I'm not sure about the word function there. I, I don't know if you could explain a little bit more. Uh, I well, understand role because role seems like who I am in the world socially. Yeah. I think uh, even if, in relation to my parent, my child. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think, you know, just sorry for interrupting, but I, I think what I was what I took from it is a label versus mm. um, the label of parent, which basically gives you attachment, gives you um, that what the child does reflects on you and what right. you do kind mm-hmm. of makes a child into your extension. That's what I think is role and label. Uh, maybe yeah. that's the wrong or right word versus function is where you have to fulfill this activity as a being or he called mm-hmm. it human and being. So the human had to do this function of um, basically looking mm. after the offspring, but as an equal, giving all the things that that child needs to become right. a grown human. And this sort of he says another thing where as a, as a be as your inner purpose and outer purpose, inner purpose is to awaken and outer purpose is to find uh, a way for your awakening to find out. He, it gets a little confusing. I, I, I don't want to go into that mm-hmm. too much, but mm-hmm. he basically talks about the human and the being and how the human has to do this thing in society function as a person with all the various sufferings that come with life. But the mm-hmm. being's purpose is to go beyond the, the, the material and find the true peace, the consciousness and the connection that all of us have within us. I mean, if you let's read the book, you probably... Uh, will understand it better when he says it. But this is my sort of takeaway yeah. from what I read. Well, um, 
I, that's, I, it's a framework I hadn't thought of. I, there has a few observations about parenting. So if you have an audience as parents, I'm just going to, I'm going to go <laughs> for it and, and talk about it. So I of think, course, yeah. you know, um, <clears throat> one thing I notice is a tug by parents nowadays, and we're constantly getting these messages um, to identify for their children, our children's accomplishments and achievements and what they do as yeah. a reflection of us in a way that, I didn't, I don't think my parents experienced, God, I hope they didn't feel all my failures were attributable to them. Yeah. Um, but, you yeah. know, my daughter got into college and so congratulations to me. I'm like, well, why would you have that? Mm. I, I've always wanted to, to admire my child, not be proud of them. Ah, there's an important difference. That's amazing. You, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that kind of captures. I think something. that's the role and function. Yeah. 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 So I've never been able to put it in this framework. Mm. that you're talking about. So I need to do that. But I had a certain kind of experience, which was, wait, I don't want to be proud. I don't, how can I be proud of them? Um, I want to admire them, meaning they've done things that I see them acting authentically. They've, uh, they've done things that, that, that matter to them. They have yeah. found fulfillment. Yeah, uh, That yeah. all takes courage. And so yeah. I want to be in a position. And I try to say the same with my student staff. It's, I admire these qualities. I mean, it's not that yeah. I don't have, feel that pride too, but I've just made a conscious effort to do that. I think yeah. another thing about parenting that I've learned and um, really coming back to probably related is, I guess if you say, well, what's our function as parent? What is it fundamentally? Yeah. Um, in terms of self-worth, I think there, there are two, there's two pieces. And if I were to do it again, uh, or we'll try to go forward to parent, there's really only one message for every problem to your, with your child. It's the same message over and over and over and again, which is, mm. You are safe and I love you. That's it. Whether they fall down and scrape their knee, whether they failed a test, whether they didn't get that job, it's the same message. That's what people need to feel in order to act on their noble impulses, their desires or pursuits, from, not from a state of fear, is that that parental fundamental relationship is, yeah. is solid no matter what I'm you do. I'm not going to abandon you because exactly. you, yeah. I think so they need to so... feel loved and they need to feel safe because once we're in a state of fear, yeah, then all the then other we don't even notice love. We don't see it. No, I think that's such a big deficit in the world of that message. But it's really amazing. No, and I think you're 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 truly unique as um, this opportunity that you have as a teacher, where you teach other teachers to teach. Which I just wanted to say mm -hmm. that statement the whole podcast, and, uh, <laughs> which is truly powerful because I mean you can kind yeah. of uh, do you feel in some state um, when you kind of take a step back, that being a parent is very similar to being a teacher uh, in what you do, because you have a child now who's an adult and you have these constant adults who are coming to you and then going out into the larger world as teachers. But these people who are your so-called students, but are experts in their field. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of this thing. They're like, Hey, we, we know everything. So they might come with this, attitude of achievement saying, who's this person trying to teach me about my thing, but you're not teaching them right. about their subject, you're teaching them how to communicate their subject in the most effective way to people yeah. who don't know the subject. Yeah. Well, yeah. I have two people that I'm teaching. Actually, when I think about faculty, the professors, I tend, I don't tend to think of them as students, maybe I should more, I have to explore that I tend to think of them as peers, <laughs> right? Like, right. I've learned some okay. things, you know, some things, let's exchange, you know, I'm, I'm sure in your field, there are their comics and you exchange ideas. You probably don't really think of yourself as teaching them in that moment so much mm. as you're improving your yourselves, you're 
your, yeah. your some shop talk. As um, comics, sometimes if you teach too much, they just take your jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I can so imagine. That little, yeah. yeah, there's a little thing of like, let's discuss this premise. And the next thing you hear it on stage going, wait a second. <laughs> uh, oh. so anyway. um, but I think the, so to connect teaching with parenting. So I do have a staff of undergraduate students. And mm -hmm. so I actually think it's easier in some ways to teach because there's not these layers and layers of emotion in years yeah. and years of interaction. So um, I'm not as attached. I'm not as invested in uh, this person. I'm in as for what I want them to do. I'm invested in them. I want them to grow. And so I can be a little more, it's, it's a little less messy. There's less of a dilemma. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. as a, it's not, I'm not, I don't actually use the tolle. It's not my responsibility to, to prepare them for their future economic viability. And I'm right. trying to help them grow and develop and be the kind of people they want to be. Give them the tools, and, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I have less attachment to the consequence. Whereas my, my daughter is going to be my daughter forever. And I'm yeah. connected to that. And my part of my feels like my responsibility is for her well-being mm. uh, in a different way. And so Natu naturally, I would say, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm more, I'm thinking about that more. And then that, yeah. if I'm thinking about that, I'm not thinking about where she is in her life right now and her development yeah. and growth, for instance. Um, and I think ultimately that's, it's not single-mindedly on that. That's one of the roles I think and functions of parents is to anticipate, to know how the world works and anticipate the adult world. But I think uh, it's really easy to focus on that and not on what it's yeah. like to be a child and what my role yeah. is right now. And I've definitely, there are times when I was more focused on the long-term than the immediate. And mm. um, so finding that balance as a parent, and but just easier, frankly, for me yeah. uh, in the teaching realm. Right. No, I think when people, um, you know, when I don't know whether it's sort of ties into this, but when you're sort of more in touch with your self-worth, whatever it may be, and you have this sense of it, admiration of someone um, mm. rather than giving attachment and you sort of, um, the person that person's outcome affects you. So if they do well, you get jealous. If they do badly, right. you feel good. It it really doesn't serve you and your self worth. Mm -hmm. But if mm -hmm. you have the sense, okay, you know, I made peace with what I want to do and why I'm doing it and whatever the results may be. You know, I, I'm going to put in this much effort. So as a result, it might not lead to this particular outcome. Once I mean, what there's so many factors. Once you do that, I realize you take you take. You admire other people say, okay, cool, this person's put in this much mm -hmm, and they end mm -hmm. up doing that. So, you know, I uh, admire that they've done this and gotten where they have because of that. that and it doesn't know, diminish me. It doesn't, yeah. It doesn't um, undermine uh, who I am. Yeah. Right. And in fact, I can learn from them. Um, I can revel in their achievements without, yeah, yeah. Uh, and appreciate them uh, as, as a distinct entity beings, I guess, to use totally words, right? They're uh, yeah. recognize their being. They yeah. have roles too. And they, you know, my staff, they have to turn in their timesheets and come to yeah. training and all that stuff, but their being super, it supersedes all of that. And mm. um, uh, so the, so I think that the challenge there is how to have to take this in a slightly different direction is how to prioritize that in institutions that are bureaucratic and yeah. um, you know big bureaucracies, and they, we have job descriptions and all that stuff. Is how do you hold on to that humanity? Yeah, uh, and particularly when you're working with young people, to yeah. and want to develop them into their full humanity. Yeah. 
given that we have these external contingencies and requirements and rules and law, you know, those are all important things, yeah, yeah. but they now, can, I want to they're ask not you, human. They're not human. They're not human. You, you know, this is, um, I don't know if you have the time, but just want to leave with this one last sort mm -hmm. of idea, because you mentioned in your, uh, when you sent me your bio that you come from a quite a big family, mm -hmm. right? And how is that, um, instrumental, like with having so many siblings, your parents having to share their sense of love and responsibility and their role and function with so many children. How did that shape your desire to get into this space, teaching, learning, and more importantly, how did it shape your self-worth compared to your siblings? And how did your parents uh, approach um, parenting for all of you? Wow. If you're okay talking about that. Sorry. <laughs> I have a little reservations, but I, hey, I trust you and I'll go forward. Um, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. I'm in my 50s now, and mm -hmm. there's, a, there's some little different moment in my life to be reflective and somewhat nostalgic, but also um, I think in terms of the work, my parents were both very civically minded. My dad was a physician, and mm -hmm. he was definitely uh, driven by the desire to care and, I mm -hmm. I and heal. And those wow. are words you don't always hear. Uh, nowadays. And I don't want to idealize that, but um, I think that's what I saw. I think he was very powerfully driven by ethics, doing right. Uh, my mother was trained as a social worker. Um, she ended up having nine children, so she didn't do that work as much informally, but um, so that was instilled. Uh, yeah, it's such powerful, um, if you want to call it morals or um, ideals, not ideals, powerful yeah. things to see in humans, right? As a child. Yeah. I yeah. Uh, and in particular, um, my, so we had this big family, but my, our, our house was always open to people. I don't think I mentioned this to you, but you know, we'd always have um, exchange students staying with us and mm. um, our house would house people, my friends for, for Thanksgiving dinner too. You know, mm. I don't know how my mom felt about that, but because there was another, <laughs> another bunch of mouths to feed, but yeah, it yeah. definitely made an impression. And I think so. And then growing up, it was one of 11 people in a shared space is definitely a sensitivity to others. So the positive yeah. of that is a sensitivity to others. The negative is a, is for me is a deep sense of self-consciousness, uh, mm. being observed by others, perhaps. Um, so mm, and coming to terms with that. So there's, when we often use the word self-conscious in a negative way, and that's certainly how I thought it most of my life. So for me to stand up in front of a group and talk was just absolutely terrifying. And I avoided it at all costs. As and okay, when I okay. did it, I experienced incredible fear. Like literally I could not speak. Um, and now you're teaching, you're doing this. I mean, you're public speaking. Yeah, and yeah it's, it's amazing, right? Um, it's I mean, I was how. absolutely terrified during the TED, TEDx talk. I literally was, and I mentioned that it was not, yeah, you did. I was you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think there's a kind of, there's a, there's a side to self. If we just look at the words self-conscious mm. and kind of pause there for a second to be aware of oneself, to examine that's, that and understand that. It's a good thing, I think. Right. Particularly mm. if we can then, for me, my interest ultimately is, is fundamentally is about understanding myself. That's the pursuit. It sounds very selfish perhaps, but I think yeah. uh, Ram Dass said, you know, the best thing I can do for you is work on me. Um, yeah. And so I believe that. And then can I take that understanding of my uh, human complexity, my beingness? Mm. I don't know if that's what Katole means. And then extend that to yeah. you. Yeah. He says the same thing uh, because he says when you're aware of your ego and you try to look past the ego 
and don't sort of get triggered or react to what people say to or rather when when the ego tries to take over and react or or defend or be aggressive but you just take a step back and say i'm not going to react you kind of number one you are dissolving the ego second mm-hmm. thing you're contributing to the larger dissolution of the the decision dissolution of the larger ego and the person who would have whose ego would have benefited or would have been ah you know got its fill from your ego doesn't have that reaction point so as a result it helps their ego dissolve as well i don't know it's mm-hmm. very complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so maybe uh, yeah. so living in that space you you learn to do that i think yeah. um if nothing else you as i'm one of i'm the eighth of nine i just didn't get to make decisions i didn't get what i wanted and needed and what i wanted a lot of the time and that's actually a useful thing there's it's yeah. mixed it's mixed um, yeah for sure now i'm one of two so i have no idea how that thing but you know sometimes you have people like oh it's, it's it's you know better off being um you know better off being one of two children so that way you can but sometimes you know it, i don't think there's a hard there's no rule to it but i just you know i've never spoken to anyone who's a part of such a large family so yeah. it just must be so much on a very fundamental level you don't feel alone right you feel you know a larger like a part of a tribe as opposed to a family alone you know yeah i think I, you know you you only know what it's like to be two i only know what it's like to be one of nine um <clears throat> yeah <laughs> something as a as a kid yeah i think yeah and there it's sometimes it's uh, wonderfully supportive to be a part of a tribe and sometimes it's stultifying and yeah, yeah. And, and not and so that i think the where i'm right now thinking about that is that's a, such a rich powerful formative experience Mm. that if we can again if we can step back and say well what did i learn from that what did i internalize even mm. i didn't even know that i was learning yeah and then from my point of view particularly about my worth and where it comes from and then is that operating now in ways that i would want and mm. and that i value and are consistent with what i want to do and can i if not can i do something about that uh, and i think for a lot of people we learned in our upbringing that our worth was contingent upon things that we did. So one of the, you know, just the reality of being in a group of 9 is you kind of got to follow the rules. So yeah, if yeah. you're if you're stand out, <laughs> you're a little different or you don't want to do it, then that's going to be hard for a parent of 9 kids to go, yeah, I mean all 9 of you can do whatever you want and I'm going to validate <laughs> that and sure. Um yeah. that's in the like <laughs> Yeah, that's going to be, be Mowgli, yeah. but we're then it's the jungle, okay? Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of pressures on parents yeah. to to do that. But what does that feel like as a 4-year-old or a 5-year-old or whatever? Mm. So there, it's complicated. Um It's like of course, yeah. Yeah. No, and thank you so much for, you know, I didn't um, you know, of course if this um didn't want to make it, make it uncomfortable or too personal, but thank you no, no, for no. answering it and uh I think, you know, it's, it's great the amount you've shared and the time you've taken and the fact that you've you know come on the podcast and spoken about what you've studied and continue to do so and what you've learned and shared all that for everyone listening to this right now uh Nick thank you so much i really appreciate it and um you know appreciate you being so uh helpful and so spontaneous with agreeing to doing this so on behalf of everyone listening and um from me to you appreciate it and thank you i appreciate you thank you so much for the opportunity to to share ideas that I was very lucky to receive from and I should mention this from my mentor uh Professor Marty Covington I I just feel privileged to be able to to share it and if it helps somebody else uh it's a cliche but uh you know that's what I'm trying to do that's amazing so people can find um they can you just drop them oh. uh of where they can find your work your 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 book your social media presence if you have that so they can follow you 
and they can um, you know they can continue this journey from where we leave this off yeah um, one of the reasons I was reluctant to talk about what it's like in the world these days around social media is I don't really participate in social media very much so um, I have a LinkedIn anything, account you can follow me um, there's a there's a YouTube recording you know video of my TEDx talk uh, TEDx Princeton it's called mm-hmm. the hidden key to understanding uh, procrastination uh, by Nick Vogue and if you put a comment there I'll or a question I'll actually answer it in the comments and I've been told I'm crazy to do that but it's kind of fun <laughs> um, yeah uh, so those are the, the the best ways I am planning on developing a course that spins out of um, of that talk just in part because of the response from people mm-hmm. and requests uh, and that's in the development um, oh brilliant so Nick Vogue you're on LinkedIn and on YouTube you must check out Nick's video of course it's got a lot of views but it i don't think um there'll be any harm in it getting three times or 100 times the number <laughs> it already has i think yeah. everyone can benefit from it and uh, i hope all of you like the episode and once again appreciate it nick thank you thank you and keep up the great work it's uh, really important conversations thank you Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.